that's my dream is that, that really that we have a closer working relationship. Forget 20 years. How about next year and the year after with scientists to figure out how our built environment actually contributes to the environment, doesn't deplete the environment. Hi, thank you for tuning in. This is Getting Personal with Designers. My name is Tamir Schuster from Precise, and today I'm talking to Claire Wise from WXY. Claire has founded the studio with her partner Mark Hughes in 1998. She's a University of Toronto graduate and received her master's of architecture from Yale University. Claire, Mark, and the studio have won many awards throughout the years, among them the Medal of Honor from the AIA New York. Let's get started. Claire, why have you decided to become an architect? That was a long uh, time ago that decision was made, Tamir. Honestly, I think I became an architect because I wanted to work on hard problems and problems that were more creative. They included drawing. I think ultimately the decision was I wanted to have a job where I could draw instead of drawing being a hobby or something I did after work. You, you said in the past that you wanted to solve the problem behind the problem. This is what you got into architecture for? Yeah, I think that there's the art creation side of it, but architecture, the root of it is to figure out how to create a better condition out of the condition that's there. And so really it's a spatial problem-solving profession, and that's what kept me in it. So I may have had uh, an idea of the fun part of it when I started that it would be more exciting for me um, to work on something tangible as opposed to a science problem, but which really, you know, when you're in undergrad or you're majoring in something, you're trying to figure out how to project from what you're studying to what you might want to work on. So even though I didn't know anything about architecture, didn't know what an architect was, when I got a little bit of a glimpse into architecture, I was intrigued by the idea that something new could be made. But the more I got into it, the more I realized, actually, there it's not about new, it's about making new or remaking or finding a way to make find figure out that there's always there you know there's never not a there there so i think that i found really exciting and honestly i love working with other people architecture requires a client requires team a team consultant so no one does it alone is that what keeps you going, like working with people? Absolutely. Yeah. I think not only working with people, but doing work with and for people. So I, I, you know, I really relate to the kind of anthropological view of the discipline. 
that it's real, that it, architecture is a discipline that in order to propose a solution, you need to study people. So you need to study people's reaction to the site. You need to study the history of the site. You need to study the history of the program. You need to study who's newly walked into the room. It so, so makes sense. It's, it's just funny because I know you and I know how you're a people person. Um, but can I take you back and just ask you about, do you remember your first project as an architect? Well, when you ask that question, do you mean the first project I ever worked on? Ever or? worked on, not as a licensed architect. Oh, okay. So I do actually. The first project I ever worked on was designing. I worked in an office. I was in school and I got my first, I usually didn't work. I worked, you know, as a waitress, but my professor at University of Toronto managed to get me a job in the city I grew up, Edmonton, with an architect that had graduated from University of Toronto. And his name was Jock McDonald. And he, we were all drawing by hand then. So that wasn't an issue of learning software. And he gave me what he thought was the glamour job in the office because he only had draftsmen in the office. I don't even think there was another architect. It was, there was a divide between, there was basically him as the architect and then he had a drafting pool. Now maybe he had another couple of architects, but since he wanted me to stay in the field, he gave me the job of designing the chandeliers in a new, in the new subway stations That's in Edmonton because he had seen chandeliers in the subway stations in Moscow. And so he was designing the subway stations kind of like the subway stations he designed in Moscow. That's pretty cool. So in Edmonton, there's actually subway stations. So there is an actual subway station and the new ones aren't like this, but the first two original ones actually have chandeliers. in them. That was my first the first thing I got to we, we need to go there to actually see it now. <laughs> uh, is there a specific project, as you look back, that you think shaped you as an architect? Or maybe a team that you worked with that shaped you or your thoughts as an architect? Absolutely. I think the first, a couple. But I think the first project that shaped me as an architect was working on working on a city hall uh, in California, Oceanside, California, with uh, Charles Moore. And that was really maybe the most, uh, because it was working on a competition. It was multiple buildings, but because it's California, the spaces inside and out could be more contiguous. And then there was, you know, it, it was still the era where in California, there was a lot of kind of sustainability energy before you, people use that word, but uh, we were using the fountain in the center of the big ceremony as a heat sink. So it had all the aspects of work. Maybe that um, I worked on later it was, it had one little building by Irving Gill, uh, Tiltup, that needed to stay, and then, but all the rest of the buildings were new. 
So yeah, I would say Oceanside Civic Center was called was probably the the most was like the influential first project. Interesting. Um, you mentioned a couple of names. Who are the people that inspired you? First of all, to pursue um, architecture and maybe also to stay in, you know, people that you looked up to. So there were two architects, again, back to growing up in Edmonton. One of them was David Lieberman, who currently lives in Toronto, and he had sort of the interesting architecture firm. He also was an architect that grew up in the Jewish community, which is in, a, in Western Canada, which is actually how I originally became an architect because someone ahead of me was in University of Manitoba. So I went and visited him at his office. And, you know, a lot of ways he, his work inspired me to become an architect, but how he worked inspired me to... Today, he's um, someone who also does music theory and performance, and he's had many different careers in architecture, but he's really um, super interesting. And then Patricia Packow, I would say. Um, she has a firm with her husband in Vancouver. They've done a lot of institutional buildings. They really kind of pushed... Um, kind of language of place. And she, um, when I was in University of Toronto, someone again who was ahead of me in school said, this person's working on schools in Edmonton. When you're back working, you should talk to her. And so over the years, I've always followed her work. So that, that's on a personal. So there's, on a personal basis, I knew of and had been able to talk to two architects whose work I was inspired by. But then on a kind of professional basis, I got to work with two different firms, Charles Moore, one of them, Urban Innovations Group, and the other one was um, Mario Gandasanas and Diana Agres, uh, who were from Argentina, and be their associate. And they, I, I learned a huge amount from them on kind of formal practices in architecture, on formalism, on shape and form. And so that combination of having worked with and for some super strong design voices, um, I think really impacted me. And then when I came back to New York and I was working for Agresta Gandasanas, I um, met um, Andrea Woodner, who I co-founded the Design Trust with. And she she has been a huge influence on how I look at not just the shape and form of buildings, but really the process of making change in cities. So she's been really influential from a kind of urban design point of view. And then, you know, finally, the most influential person in my life up to the kind of last couple of years with more partners is really Marco is my partner. I mean, he's my biggest influence because we're, we've practiced together for many, many years, but also because um, he's so well read and he's such a kind of such a good artist and a strong sense of 
independence from kind of popular opinion that um, I think it's really created a distinct kind of attitude about our work. I, I do have a question about Mark, which I'm going to ask later. But um, when you first decided to open your own practice, you were a young mom. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. How? That's actually why I decided to start. This practice. is why you started. Okay. How challenging was it? Well, first of all, I it's had two a pra- babies at right. once. No, but I had a practice without before I had kids in California. So while I was working, I also had projects because it was houses. I designed and I had a practice and I practice by myself, but also with some other uh, architects who were working also at other practices in LA. Actually, there's at least eight houses that I got built during that time, you know, both before and while I was at school at Yale. In starting a practice again in New York, it's, it, felt natural because my choice was either to stay in New York and work for Agreste and Sonas or go back to the practice I had started in LA and then figure out if I wanted to then work for a firm again or just grow practice. I think the question underneath that all is why I always knew that I wanted a practice because I've, I've collaborated with a lot of different partners and, and like having a practice. Some of that is sort of what you know. Because my father was a doctor and I saw how he practiced with other partners, but yet they were sort of independent, that was sort of my paradigm for business was a professional practice. Some of it was, at the time I started in architecture, There, were, I felt because I did go to a corporate practice first thing when I moved to Los Angeles, that there was a real glass ceiling for women designers. And I wanted to, I wanted to feel like I could really design, had a chance to be part of design buildings. So that's why in the end I gravitated it and working for more design oriented practices because there wasn't that ceiling in design oriented practice that I felt there was in corporate work. And then in the end, because of, I think I would have stuck with it, but because of having my first child, it just felt that it, it was too difficult to practice at the, that time and still have a child. So I want, I knew that I could, could absolutely, if I had my own practice, I could, Control I could, it. yeah, I could choreographed hours in the way that worked for me. So that's how I ended up doing it. You, you mentioned just a little bit, but being an own, a woman-owned business, um, looking back, do you feel like there's some missed opportunities um, because maybe certain clients didn't see you um, the way they should have because they feared that architectural is like a masculine Um, profession? Well, I think there's a couple of ways to look at it. One is in architecture for anyone, no matter race, gender, background, there's always a things you don't do because you choose to do other things. 
if you choose to that you don't want to travel, which was in my case, that means you only have access to local work. Okay, there's a trade-off right there. And that is, you know, is that a gender question or is that a personal family or two question? A lot of men make that same choice now, but maybe they weren't making that choice then, but now they are. So maybe at this point, it's there's a greater understanding of the choices I think I had to make more subconsciously then that are, there's a consciousness around it. And then I think it's very true that building is a huge investment and there's a lot of money at stake. Maybe there's not tons to be made, but there's a lot at stake, especially in commercial real estate with the exchange of properties, that there's a history of it being dominated by white men. And the the kind of more prominent projects are office towers. They have been collapsed. And there's very, very few women that have designed office towers. And there's very few women, honestly, with the exception of Zaha Hadid and Jeannie Gang that have designed high-rise buildings. Which you met in the past. So what, had there been more... I do think that that has been historically an issue of gender. Whether it is now remains to be seen... But on the other hand, there's wonderful, the wonderful 20,000 square foot, 10,000, 5,000 square foot projects that we've been able to do are hugely meaningful. So I don't, I think the other kind of thing that that maybe we're getting to as we look at kind of things through a kind of how do we get rid of the sort of stereotyping of what's architecture and what's not architecture or what's a good commission and not a good commission, then maybe it's not all about height, size, but the real issue is impact, right? So how do you do work that has, for the meaningful. effort you put in, meaningful impact? Yeah. So I, I, in a lot of ways, I felt very lucky to be part of discussion around impact. And if anything, that's really has been a kind of ongoing pursuit. So I'll follow up on that because working and talking to some of your colleagues, um, they see you on the on the your female colleagues. They see you as the one who actually broke the ceiling glass. They're looking up at you. Both know it looking up at you and saying, Claire did it. Claire and her generation were the one that actually, you know, opened that field for us. Do you feel it? Do I, 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 I feel like we weren't the pioneers because those were people like Carol Ross Barney or uh, Deborah Burke. But absolutely the generation behind them, which is, you know, probably people like me and Annabelle Seldorf, um, Jeannie Gang, didn't benefit from, you know, at least two or three generations of women architects. But we had one disadvantage, which is when we graduated, there was just a lot less work. 
And even when graduate work, there was that stay alive till 95. And the first, and then when I did my five year, it was like 84. So, but, but I do think that redefining what architecture was, our generation has been of women architects have been really tied into doing, but it, it rests on the laurels of, you know, the Roberta Washingtons, the uh, uh, Sarah Capels, the Deborah, who were out there establishing their firms, making their businesses work, like, you know, having long standing and growing businesses. So it required that because I think before that, there was a number of important women, but they, they weren't as well known. Like, you know, like Beverly Willis, um, whose name, you know, you know, she had a very, very large firm in California. She was a complete exception. You know, um, Norma, like, um, Norma Scolaric also, you know, their firm, there was three women in LA in general. Um, I don't know what it was for me, the Western experience being in California at that time, it, it was a lot easier actually practicing in California, having your own practice as a woman and also, but there was a division there between a corporate practice and sort of the smaller design oriented practices. I do think the corporate practice part has been, was more challenging in earlier generations. And thinking about the next generation, you have three daughters. Do you want them to practice architecture? Well, one of them has just graduated. Congratulations. From Dalhousie um, in her Master of Architecture degree. And I absolutely hope she practices. And, you know, my dream would be that she that we get to practice together. Do you want to collaborate? Oh, Do you see it working? You market her? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> but, um, you know, but it'll be her choice. She's gotten a chance to work with Snoheda. She also worked for a small architect. She's worked for us, but she worked for a small architect in Halifax. In general, you know, if I had any kind of dream about architecture is that we would graduate a lot more people. There would be more architects in all walks of life. And that, uh, that sort of architectural skill set would would be, you know, as useful in and out of the design and building of buildings. Yeah, I get that. You mentioned a lot of places, so let me just walk through quickly over the map. Born in Edmonton, moved to Toronto, back to Alberta, L.A., Yale, New York. Eventually you settled in New York. Why? Well, New York, number one, if you want to stay and practice in one place, is like thousands of places, right? Each borough is different. There's a huge waterfront. There's the challenges of density. I I like cities. New York is a great city. Uh, arch, do, working on architecture from New York allows, even if I wasn't focused on New York, now as we the practice matures, we're getting opportunities to work outside of New York. And New York is a great place to practice from. You can go almost anywhere from here. Also, New York has so many different conditions that do relate to conditions in other cities. You know, from Queens 
to Staten Island, to the Bronx. So you can actually duplicate work that you're doing in New York and just kind of settle into a new, different state, a different city. Well, in some respects, some things happen in New York first that we can learn from, including mistakes, so that when you go to another place, you're bringing some lessons with you. Like, oh, we rushed to demolish all of those buildings. Maybe we shouldn't have. Or, oh, we didn't build bridges when we had a chance. Maybe we should have. So on top of that, is that the role of the architect in the modern world? Just bringing his experience to different cities and states and telling them, let's learn from the past. Well, I think you're also learning from tools and techniques we have today. I mean, I think what we're doing, let's say the question of the day is um, climate crisis, right? Climate change. So there is things to learn from the past, like how did we, how did we deal with the 1918-1919 pandemic with ventilation and radiators? But you have to reflect on, well, what, what are the social and technical challenges today in, in either changing a building, putting up a new building, putting up a whole block, removing a highway, like all of these things that as human beings, we want to keep making our environment, our environments more conducive to a better relationship with our ecosystem it means asking some hard questions about what we're doing and maybe as we're glancing through the future and you mentioned the different pandemic um covet is not is maybe in the rearview mirror not yet but yeah by the time it's going to air yeah <laughs> um but what did we learn from covet and how do you see it being implemented in architecture in the next couple of years? Well, one thing we learned from COVID is that we have to think about the air we breathe in a more comprehensive way. And that rules, like what happened when scientists set some rule that a airborne means only particles under, you know, a certain amount, And after that, it's something else is that we have to look at our engineering architecture rules a little bit more critically because as much as we want, there's benefits of things like passive house, but we have to worry very clearly about if we make sealed buildings, how are we dealing with ventilation in better ways, right? Especially if we have um, power goes out or we're looking at buildings where someone hasn't maintained a system and, and mechanical. So we have to look at the relationship between our equipment, our air conditioning, which is killing the planet right now, even our new kinds, which is you have a heat wave and it just throws the heat to the outside, right? So we have to look at opening ourselves to really collaborating with inventors, with the industries to, to look at air conditioning more critically to look at flexibility of spaces where we had so many stores that had a difficult time moving outdoors, right? How do we design the ground floors and stores to deal with the future? And how do we help people imagine that? 
I'm assuming that's a lot of landscaping as well. Yeah, it's a lot of landscape, but it's a lot of hardscape. I mean, it's a lot of lobbies in a building. It's a lot of stores that get rented retail. Like, we have a lot of capacity. Um, we have a lot of empty sites all over the country. And so how do we, if COVID said spread things farther apart, but climate crisis is saying you guys have to live closer together and you have to stop you know, gassing up your cars and you have to not waste material and you have to recycle. How do we reconcile those two things? I think is ultimately a really important role for architects. And if you can imagine 25 years from now, is that what's going to happen? Scientists going to work with architects together? Yes, maybe? that's my dream is that, oh. that really that we have a closer working relationship. Forget 20 years. How about next year and the year All after? Right. With scientists to figure out how our built environment actually contributes to the environment, doesn't deplete the environment. And that's on a regional scale, uh, kind of like that idea of the Blue Dunes book that we did after Rebuild by Design, but it's also on a micro scale with, you know, are we going to be 3D printing in an office our own furniture as we need it? And is it going to be out of renewable materials? It's interesting. I was thinking 20 years from now. You were saying next year, so. I think so next okay. year this has to start. <laughs> okay. Thinking about it. Um, if you could collaborate, right, um, with anyone from any field to do a project, who would it be? I know. Go crazy. Um, well, I'm going to cite Pete Audel first, someone we have collaborated with that I would collaborate with anytime and would want to again, who um, is a, a kind of plantsman, an artist with plants. I mean, I'm really excited about collaborating with someone who understands how things grow, and he's just amazing about it. And I think the, the other collaboration um, again back to the science thing is I be I have a friend uh, Julie Pullen who's um, a marine biologist and um, well marine physicist and marine biologist and really collaborating with someone on how in a way, how buildings, like what we're talking about, Governor's Island, could contribute to the larger kind of benefits of and how to even look at buildings from the point of view of how do we breathe better? Like, like could buildings actually produce oxygen instead of, de instead of, being carbon-intensive and depleting oxygen, I'm pretty excited about. That sort of, I do feel like there's um, a huge potential of having so many different benefits from the investments we already make. Like, make more with less, basically. Okay. Um, that was the hard part, or maybe the easy part. I'll ask you some couple of personal questions just to get to know you better. Um, so we talked about three daughters and Mark. 
um, and you said that you want to work together in the future. How in this family atmosphere, for you, Mark, maybe your daughter, how can we keep it on a professional, how do you keep it on a professional level? And, you know, what's, what's happening inside our house is our personal things. And when we're thinking about a project, that's us collaborating as professionals. Well, I think it's hard, even with people you've worked with for a long time True. and you get to be friends with people. True. So it's not yeah. that personal a project. I think that in general, you know, with social media, with, you know, being able to text and phone people, const uh, not phone people, but text and communicate non-verbally, I think there has been good things, but there's been bad things with how people communicate. And so I don't think that questions as much how do you divide between home life, but it's more like how do you figure out how to communicate and work together with anyone? So in the case of Mark and I, we have a huge advantage in that We have very different personalities, so we, we work well together, but we don't overlap each other, right? And we, we figured out ways how to argue productively. Like, I also believe that real conversations and relationships require people to be as honest as possible, which means that you argue once in a while and you release the tension, but you have to, you know, the advantage sometimes of a healthy family relationship is you always know someone's there no matter what, right? But you're careful. And I think that has to be true of as you develop client relationships, as you develop other relationships, you have to get to know people well enough to develop authentic relationships with them. And that some of that's nonverbal. It's having the experience of doing a project together can actually bring people together. People that in an office that, you know, You did a project together, it got built, you got to celebrate that. That's a meaningful thing. And, and, and to not forget that and to, especially if you run an office, not take that for granted. Amazing. I like that answer. I don't know. Especially because you said it's okay to argue every once in a while. Um, I think releasing tension by arguing makes for healthier relationships. I think the issue is to differentiate the personal from the subject matter you're arguing for. And that's as true, I think, with family as it is with your colleagues. Like, if I'm arguing with you about a wall detail... We will never argue, Claire. If I'm arguing <laughs> with you about a wall detail, it should be about the wall, sure. not about us. Yeah, true. You're running around a lot. Um, what is your go-to food? Like, what do you grab when you're in between meetings? Oh, I'm just trying to figure that out. <laughs> uh, lately, I've been wondering about that. Um, I think traveling and COVID, COVID, the last year in 2020, I didn't go up. I actually didn't even order in. I, I love cooking, so I cooked at home. But we were just in Rogers, Arkansas, and we had some wonderful meals. And um, I... I hadn't been eating bread all the way through because I don't bake my own bread. And there but it made me realize that there's kind of a tradition of food to go, whether it's sushi or yeah. sandwiches. And that's what I missed, actually, of all the, 
food you can't make at home is to go food, you know, on the run. So my go-to is, you know, some form of really good sandwich. I wanted to say sandwich. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You always, not always, but a lot of times you're with your headphones on. When you're not on the phone, what are you listening to? Is it news, music, podcasts? That's really hard because I tend to listen to what like is topical right so the new like for example uh last week i obsessed over it new york times came out with an article that it was the whatever anniversary of Joni mitchell's album blue so i was listening to it and reading the article and then i got addicted to listening to it after it because everyone had all these comments on each of the songs and it made you understand the music differently But, you know, I tend to like uh, classical music. I listen to as much Bach as possible. It's also inspiration or Inspir- just to relax? Just to relax. I actually can't work and Good listen music. to music at the same time. They're, they're two totally different things. Music is for not thinking about work. Okay. Except I really need live music so i'm looking forward to going back to yes concerts. let's do that i need live let's. music um to feel like emotion any, any particular concert which is your first the first ticket you're gonna buy right after covid no but there was like a there was a sculpture opening downtown brooklyn did at bam and a jazz um trumpet player whose name I'm forgetting now, uh, played. And that, like a so, it was solo trumpet was outside, mind-blowing. It was so good. Okay. Uh, if you can imagine the perfect vacation, what it would be? You know, I can imagine a lot of them. But Mark and I had a perfect vacation early on when we first met, which is was going to the Yucatan and... Um, exploring all the rune sites. That was like the perfect <laughs> vacation. All right. Okay. You can still do that. You um, can. But... Um, if you weren't an architect, what would you do? I, I'll answer that with a, maybe a different question answer, which is I, ha- I have this some belief in the back of my head that I would be I can I would be happy doing almost anything in other words if from not only a survival point of view but also just from a kind of is that I would just, whatever field or whatever you know whether it was insurance or whether it was painting or whether it was um, you know medicine or anything else is that to me, Life is still to be lived. And so in a strong sense, I feel like it was a lucky accident that I ended up in architecture. But on the other hand, I feel like whatever task I have is, you know, I still bring the same person to it. That's, that's a great, I guess, tip for life in general. Um, Well, with, I think it does relate to practice because it has meant over the years that even 
projects like, you know, Kuski Plaza start out as a re-roofing job, that any projects you can turn into something that kind of makes good on its potential, right? doesn't matter what it is at the beginning. True. Um, Claire Wise, I had fun. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Tamir. Thank you. Um, That's it. All right. We did it. Bye, Tamir. Bye, Claire. Thank you for listening. This time we got personal with Claire Wise from WXY. To learn more about Claire and the studio's work, check out their website, wxystudio.com, and on Instagram at wxystudio. Stay tuned for future episodes of Getting Personal with Designers. Thank you.